This morning, in Mark 11, 1 through 11, we're looking, and if your Bible has headings, you'll see the words, the triumphal entry. Uh, a triumphal entry is something uh, typically reserved for uh, like a Roman general returning from war who's, who's conquered or, or achieved a great victory in battle. And um, the context this morning that Jesus is in is, is very similar, uh, though we're going to look at some details. But when we talk about the triumphal entry, we're talking about the Messiah, which is a very loaded word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, to really understand what the people in the story today, what Jesus' contemporaries were going through and what they were seeing and how they were understanding this, it's helpful to get a little historical background from the scriptures. The, uh, the idea of Messiah is not a new thing when Jesus comes onto the scene. It is a, a very old idea, and Jesus knows this, and he takes advantage of it, and he's very strategic in the things that he does and the way that he does them and the things that he says. All throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, there are a smattering of scriptures and, and pictures and images that hint at us and, and at some points just plain lay it out that Israel should be expecting God to come, that he will send his emissary, the Messiah, a sent one who is set apart, who will come and rule Israel the correct way, a way they have not yet experienced. So I think it will be helpful for us to look at some of these scriptures this morning. And I know from last week, this will be a little bit of a review since we jumped around looking at the mission of God in the Old Testament so you don't have to, to flip to these, but just listen as we go through them. So just in discussing the messianic expectations of the Jewish people in first century A.D., I think we could start in Genesis. It starts in the very beginning. In the very beginning of God's word, from the beginning, from the fall, God's eye is on the one that he will send. He will make a way. He will make a right way for his people to come back to him. Starting in Genesis 3.15, many of you will know this verse. After Adam and Eve, they eat of the, knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, God curses them. But he also curses Satan. And he says to, this, to Satan that one day the seed of the woman, a child, will bruise or crush his head, so Satan will be defeated. Genesis 3.15, it's the very beginning of God's word. And from that moment on, we see it all throughout Scripture that a Messiah will be coming. Later in Genesis, in Genesis 49, in verse 10, this is at the end of Genesis, and then Joseph and his brothers and father are all reunited, and Jacob is blessing them. And, and speaking to Judah, Jacob is speaking prophetically, and he says to Judah, the scepter, the ruling authority, shall not depart from Judah, speaking prophetically of Israel, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. You can see the messianic implications there. Numbers twenty four seventeen, Balaam is prophesying. And Balaam's not even, like, turns out not to be that great of a guy. But still the Lord uses him to prophesy. And he says, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, one 
and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. This is looking forward to the Messiah. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for them, this is God speaking to Moses, I will raise up for them, Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them. And this one has a dual fulfillment. It's it's fulfilled in Joshua, but it's also looking forward to the Messiah. 2 Samuel 17, 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, the Davidic covenant. Speaking of the sons that will follow David and his Davidic line, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We know that Jesus comes from the Davidic line. So this is looking forward to the Messiah. Psalm 2, many of David's psalms have these messianic implications. Psalm 2, David writes prophetically of Jesus, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth. Your possessions. Again, picturing this coming ruler who will come and who will rule the nations on God's behalf. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Picture the cut down tree that's coming back to life, right? It's, it's got a shoot that's coming back. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And, and we could keep going. We could go. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, Jeremiah, we see the new covenant being inaugurated. All of the minor prophets, there's, there's something, Zechariah, Malachi, we're going to look at Zechariah this morning. All of these and more are scriptures that held a promise for Israel, of one who would come from God and of God and would set things right for Israel. So this is Israel's expectation. This is not new teaching for them. This is not a new idea, a Messiah It's an old thing that people are aware of. The messianic hope is not something that just pops up when Jesus comes onto the scene. Sometimes I think we can forget that. We just think of Jesus as the Messiah, but what does that mean? This is a historic figure. And we know, having all the information, that it's Jesus. But we don't want to import that into the text this morning in chapter 11 because the people that are witnessing Jesus in his triumphal entry They're not sure about that yet. They haven't seen what is to come. The truth that God would come and save his people is clear throughout Scripture. Israel anticipated the Messiah would come, that he would fulfill God's covenant with Israel, and through him, the nations would be blessed. So by the time Jesus is encountering the people and the religious authorities in the first century, they've had more than a thousand years of messianic expectation. That's a lot of time to think about something. And that's what happened. There was a lot of time to think about something, and the more they thought about it, the more wrong they got. There was an issue with Israel's understanding of what the Messiah would be doing. Over the centuries, let's put ourselves in the context of Israel. Over the centuries, they had struggled through repeated invasions, occupations, captivities, destructions, and rebuilding of physical Israel. So the expectations of what the Messiah would be and what he would accomplish had shifted, and they had shifted wrongly from a scriptural, biblical, spiritual hope that the Messiah represents to a physical and a political one. In their sin and blindness, sin and blindness that we can sympathize with, the people of Israel had twisted the scriptures to fit their own hopes 
of what the Messiah would do for them. They believed that the Messiah would take violent action against the surrounding nations, that Israel would once and for all be a powerful, wealthy nation, and that the Messiah would be their new and lasting ruler, like, like King David. King David is kind of, the, kind of the model here, in an eternal political kingdom. But this conflicts directly with what we already know, just in what we've studied in Mark, about who Jesus is. So Jesus declaring himself to be the Messiah, as we'll see him do today, it presents a problem. Because we've seen three times in the last two chapters, in fact, just the the most recent one in, in Mark 9, verse 31, Jesus foretells again of his resurrection. He says, they went from there and, and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And get this, verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus will suffer and die. But here the disciples do not understand what he's getting at yet. And so we have to also believe that if they don't understand it, those closest to him, that there's some confusion elsewhere. One scholar puts it this way. He says, Jesus' willingness to suffer and die stands in marked contrast to the widespread expectation of a coming Messiah who would slay his enemies. The fact that he did not attempt to overthrow the Roman occupiers and reclaim Israel's throne may explain in part why he was widely, in part, why he was widely rejected by Jewish authorities. So this morning as we study Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as he heads towards his crucifixion, we're going to see that Jesus is not the Messiah that anyone expected, but he's exactly the Messiah that we need. Will you pray with me quickly? Lord, we just ask for you to illumine these scriptures, or we ask for your help, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would Show us, Jesus, as king, that you would give us a clear picture of Jesus, risen, reigning, and exalted. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at our text this morning, we're in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. I think it's important to note ahead of time why the chapter break occurs here. So the chapters aren't in the original translation. That's, a, that's done for our benefit, right? So we have to ask her, why did the chapter break here? It's intentional. Our translators, they're smart dudes. They know what's going on. So they put this here for us. Chapter 11 begins because it highlights, it begins where it begins because it highlights a shift in Jesus' ministry. So everything we've been reading up to this point, Jesus' whole outlook is about to shift. He's going to go from mainly teaching, mainly preaching, and doing miracles, and now he has his his eyes focused on the cross. And he's going to do some very interesting things that we need to draw out for ourselves this morning. So the, of these, there's two major shifts that I want us to note this morning. There's, there's more. I think the, the two most helpful ones um, is that he moves from, the first one we're going to see in verses 1 through 6, is that Jesus moves from a scholar to a sovereign. He moves from a scholar to a sovereign. It's no mystery at this point in Mark that Jesus has 
been known as a great teacher to many. By this point in his ministry, he has quite a following, and, and the people recognize him as a teacher with great authority. But as Jesus prepares to his entrance into Jerusalem, he does a few things. He does three things that signal to us that he will no longer simply be known as a teacher, but he is coming out as the king that he truly is. And the first one, read with me in the text. It says, now that they, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, we don't know who they were, and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So when Jesus instructs the two disciples to collect the donkey, he does something interesting here. Let's read in verse 3. It says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? He tells them to say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. What does Jesus tell them to do? He, he knows someone's going to question them about, I mean, guys, they're essentially stealing a donkey. Let's just break that down, right? Maybe commandeering. That's a, that's a word that we can use, right? We'll break that down in a minute. But, so Jesus knows, and they should know too, that when they just go in and grab this donkey, someone's going to say something to them. But the Lord gives them a line. He's prepared. He tells them to say, the Lord has need of it. And this simple turn of phrase, it shouldn't be overlooked. Let's think about what Jesus didn't say. The disciples aren't to say, my Lord needs it. And they're not to say, a Lord. You see that guy over there, that Lord? Yeah, he needs it. No, they're to say, the Lord needs it. And this is where I think the Greek is a little bit helpful. Because in the Greek, this phrase, ha kurios, it means God in this context. Mark uses it again as we get to verse 9. People say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's God. Mark uses that same word here to highlight what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he, Jesus is referring to himself clearly and unmistakably by his true identity, God. And that is not a small thing because he doesn't do that often. The second way that Jesus is declaring his kingship this morning is that Jesus collects this personal donkey. Like we said, he commandeers it. He just sends his disciples to go get it like it's his property. Like, oh yeah, I got a donkey over there, go grab it. It's not his donkey, though. Well, that, we under, that they understand it, right? Because it is his donkey. He kind of, he, I, I, picture, I pictured it wrongly <laughs> in my mind, like in the cop movies. Where someone's like, they got to get somewhere, and they just step out in front of traffic, and they have their badge, and they're like, I need your vehicle, and they commandeer the vehicle, and they speed off. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. But it's not, right? Because Jesus is not just a cop. He's not just a human authority. And we know that. We have the benefit of that. But Jesus is, is establishing that here in this action. This is more than just Jesus ad hoc borrowing a donkey because he needs it. He's exercising his right as a king in the British monarchy. I don't know if you guys follow the British monarchy. I love the royal weddings. They're, they're one of my favorite things. So just, anyways, the British monarchy, the king or queen, don't judge me. I know you guys watched it. It was, it was fabulous. All right. The king and queen, if the king and queen in the British monarchy, if they wanted to, could seize whatever land was required of them because the way the British monarchy sees it, it's all the monarchy's land. 
Everyone else is just paying rent. And Jesus is kind of invoking the same right here, except on a global, eternal scale. By requiring this donkey from the citizen, Jesus is declaring his kingship because being a king is a lot different than being a teacher, right? So as we said, Jesus was already known as a teacher, and people accepted him as that. That was, that was a granted, a teacher, rabbi. We hear people calling that a lot. But a teacher only holds sway over those who choose to follow him and submit to them. They have their following, and those are the people who acknowledge his authority. But outside of that following, a teacher doesn't really have any authority. If you're not in the classroom, they can't give you a bad grade, right? A king has power over everyone, though. Whether they are in his party or not, the king does not require your approval to be king. Your acknowledgement of his kingship is not requisite to his power and authority. If you're in his kingdom, he's your king. And this is what Jesus is demonstrating to those following him. Third, the third way Jesus is declaring his kingship, we need to investigate the situation with a cult. Because Jesus is making a huge statement here about himself uh, as true king by the way he chooses to ride into Jerusalem. I think to get a full scope of this, we need to read Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. You don't have to flip there. If you want to, you can. It's not that far back from Mark. In Zechariah 9, this is one of those messianic passages we were discussing. It reads as following. It says, Greatly rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is crafty. He knows what he's doing. This is, this is a carefully crafted moment in fulfilling this scripture in Zechariah, which is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's picked this moment, he's handpicked this moment to point to this scripture, and he did it for a reason. He did, he's stating three things, really. He's stating that he is king, right? Zechariah 9 9. Behold, your king is coming. Jesus is stating that he is the king of Jerusalem, that he's the Messiah. He's also stating the kind of kingdom that it's going to be, his kingdom. He's stating that it will be one of righteousness and salvation and humility. And rightly so, Jesus rides in on a donkey. That's humble. And he's also stating who the kingdom is for. And this is a practical one for us. Verse 10 says and he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth this his kingdom is for all people everywhere and that's going to conflict with a few people in the city of jerusalem the authorities there are all about israel they're all about israel being number one but what jesus is pointing to here is that his kingdom goes well beyond jerusalem It goes well beyond the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. It extends to the ends of the earth. And this is a review from last week from what Matt took us through the scriptures, looking at God's mission to be glorified among the nations through salvation. And as Jesus begins 
his march toward the cross, he points us to this scripture to make a clear and definitive statement that his work on the cross is good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there's one final thing here with the cult that we need to examine. I also look at why he did this the way that he did. Big picture. We know, we, so we know why he's writing the cult. He, he's pointing to Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Because it, it says something, he, he's using the scriptures to say something about himself. So that he doesn't have to say it out loud. He's fulfilling this for our benefit. So that when we look back and when the disciples look back and the early church look back, they see, man, Jesus knew what he was doing, right? But we, look, we need to look at how he goes about getting the cult, because I think there's something there too. So Jesus knows he needs the cult to make the point. But rather than just telling two disciples to go into the village and just find a donkey, he could have done that, right? He could have said, oh man, I really need a donkey because I really want to do the Zechariah 9-9 thing. Uh, i got a few minutes. Hey guys, can you go see if you can find a donkey in this village? That's not what Jesus does. Jesus clairvoyantly tells them where the exact donkey he needs will be when they enter the town next to them. He doesn't even go in. He just tells them where it's going to be. Just go in the town. This is exactly where it's going to be. And I don't think Jesus was on his way to Bethany. He's like texting his buddy Joe, like, hey, Joe, on the way to Bethany. Be there to pick up the donkey in a few. Thanks, bro. Thumbs up emoji. No, Jesus knew where it would be because he put it there. This moment where Jesus enters Jerusalem one last time before his death is monumental, and he's not leaving anything to chance. From the dawn of creation, God has sovereignly orchestrated all things so that the exact moment Jesus is outside of this village, this exact cult is tied in just the right spot. It is not accidental or haphazard. Everything from the beginning of time is coming to a head for this singular purpose. That Jesus would be at the gates of Jerusalem, that the people would be crying Hosanna, that the ruling establishment would be fed up and out for blood. That Jesus would be nailed to the cross on the Passover as the Passover lamb. Not a single detail is out of place, including the placement of a donkey, a young colt. He would have the honor for all time of carrying Jesus into Jerusalem. Not the smallest detail escaped the eye of the Lord on this day. And folks, that same eye is on you. He, it has been on you and your salvation since the dawn of time. So I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you find yourself, today the Lord has sovereignly and caringly ushered you there, here with us, for one goal, that you would know and worship Jesus. So whether you are far off or near, whether you are walking with the Lord, walking in disobedience, maybe you don't even know the Lord, do not believe for a second that anything that has brought you here today to this point in your life is an accident. God's eye was on the donkey. He made sure it was where it was supposed to be, when it was supposed to be there. And he's doing nothing different with you.
His goal is to shepherd you towards his son by the power of his spirit, spirit that you might repent and believe and trust and walk and worship because it's what you were meant to do. There's another transition here in Jesus' ministry as we, as we move from verses 1 through 6 to, uh, to verses 7 through 10. And that transition is, uh, our first transition was from scholar to sovereign. The second transition is, is from silencing to shouting. So we see in uh, verse 10, verses 9 and 10, as those who were following Jesus as he, as he is approaching the city, those who went before him and those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And before that, they're, they're throwing down their cloaks and they're holding up their palm branches and they're, they're lauding this king as he comes into the city, the Messiah. But this is very different. Up to this point, in Mark, there has been a theme of Jesus instructing people and demons to be silent about his identity, the Son of God. I counted eight times that Jesus does this in Mark. He discouraged people and demons from broadcasting his identity early in his ministry. It was for a purpose. To, he's keeping a low profile, or rather a, a low enough profile. I mean, we still see he gets crushed by the crowds, and everywhere he goes, there's a million people following, and he's feeding 5,000 people and getting chased across the, the Mediterranean, the Sea of Galilee. It's a lot of people following, but his goal is to keep a low enough profile to accomplish what he has come to accomplish. But now that he has made a full display of his personality and his power and his perfection, he does away with the low profile bit, and Jesus allows the crowds to praise him and welcome him. Because a time has come for him to declare himself openly to the people and the authorities and to everyone. And the people's shouts, we see that it's an appropriate response for, for who Jesus is. If he's the Messiah, this is the way you would do it, Right? But I think ultimately their response is confused. And we're going to see how we know that as we look at the text. As Jesus enters the city, let's just look at what the people are doing. I think they do three things that are helpful for us to draw out. So the first one, starting in verse 7, it says, and they, So they, they bring the colt to him, and first the disciples, they throw their cloaks on it, because I can't imagine riding on the. I mean, we have some donkeys that live across from the parsonage. Those things are bony. I can't imagine trying to ride on that thing just with all the, the, the bones. and the, it, That would be pokey. I don't, I don't think that would be fun to ride on. So they throw their cloaks on, make them a nice seat. But then they start throwing their cloaks down in the streets. And they start waving palm branches. They throw their cloaks down before Jesus as he enters because this is a sign of an ancient sign of submission to the rule of a returning king. We actually see it in the scriptures in 2 Kings 9. Even the disciples, they're submitting to him as they throw their cloaks on the donkey. The second thing, they spread the palm branches. They put those down and they wave them before Jesus. And the palms, they signify to the Jewish people their pride and their anticipation of victory. The palm branch was actually a really common symbol in Israel. In Jerusalem specifically, they used it on coins and in art. And as the people were celebrating their liberator, who they thought the Messiah would be in pomp, they're doing it the same way as they would have done the Maccabees as they freed Jerusalem from the Seleucid rule like 200 years before. The third thing is they shout Hosanna. Hosanna 
It just means save us. So they have a clear picture of who the Messiah is, and they're responding to him appropriately. But even though the crowds have rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, we know ultimately that this was all a sham. It was all just a show. I think the question that you should be asking yourself is, Michael, how do we know that? Well, it's actually pretty apparent. Jesus' own disciple, Judas, is going to betray him in just a few days for a few pieces of silver. He didn't get it, and he spent years with Jesus. Jesus' standout disciple, Peter, maybe you're thinking, Judas, he's just a bad egg. Like, Don't use him as an example. Well, let's look at Peter. He doesn't hold up much better. Jesus' standout disciple, Peter, he denies Jesus, even knowing Jesus, three times before the week is out. Peter, he's in the inner circle. Like, not long ago, he was on the mountain seeing Jesus transfigured. Denies Jesus three times. And ultimately, we look at the crowds. How quickly did the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, turn to crucify him, crucify him. The same ones who lauded Jesus' advent to the great city within a matter of days would cry out to have Barabbas released and Jesus condemned. And in Mark 15, leading up to the crucifixion, the same crowds are mocking Jesus while he hangs on the cross. And we know they were at least around for part of Jesus' teaching. Maybe they even followed him because they as he's hanging on the cross, they quote his teaching back to him. They say, you, you who would destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it, save yourself and come down from the cross. While Jesus hangs on the cross, those who sang his praises a week earlier are nowhere to be found. They hide and deny and fall away. And despite all Jesus' teaching and despite all the scriptures that attest to the Messiah, the hearts of the people were hard. And their ears were deaf. So they wanted a Messiah to give political allegiance to. Because that's easy. But Jesus, he required their full, undivided faith. It was too much. So they wanted to decide a Messiah who would liberate them from the Romans. But Jesus came to liberate them from bondage to someone else. To sin and the devil. They weren't interested. They wanted a Messiah to bring new leadership. But Jesus, he brings new hearts. None of these three things these people were interested in. The crowds of Jerusalem were interested in Jesus when they thought he would benefit them the way they imagined. But that the tough part about Jesus is his discipleship is costly. For some of us, our belief in Christ mirrors those who shouted and waved palm branches on this day outside of the city of Jerusalem. We are like them. As they follow Jesus, as he heals and as he feeds and as he performs miracles and as he gives sight to the blind, we jump and we sing and we dance at the triumphal entry. But at the trial of Christ and at the scourging of Christ and at the killing of Christ, we are absent. And you miss the most important of all the accomplishments of Jesus, the resurrection. You miss the point of the Messiah because he doesn't meet your expectations. 
If that's you, then, then you've merely tasted Christ. You've previewed his benefits, but as the road of discipleship ever deepens, you turn back to worldly pleasures, to the easy way, to what you've always known, and you just retain an epithet, so-and-so, once walked with Jesus. We remain interested in following Jesus when the cost is low and the benefits are good. Church, hear the words of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus' parable, Jim Elliot rephrases it this way. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Folks, I'm, I'm not here to tell you that following Jesus is easy. And if you've been following for any amount of time, you know that's not true, even if I did say it. Sometimes it's not even much fun, the traditional sense of the word fun. But I'm promising you on the word of God that it is worth it. It is worth all that you can pay and all that you can give because the rewards for giving up the things that the folks in this story did not want to give up, their sin, their thoughts, their dreams, their lifestyle, it's all worth it. Because what we gain in Christ is what we were meant for. We were meant for worship, that you can approach boldly the God of the universe who loves and reaches down to you and on your behalf goes to a cross while you are still a sinner. And he dies for you to free you from the bondage to sin. Would you put your faith in him? Would you trust him? That is a good God. The cost of, of Jesus' discipleship is nothing in comparison to the reward. Ultimately, we can sympathize with the misconceptions about Jesus because who Jesus truly is is remarkable. What happens is, is we bring Jesus down to a level that we can grasp, even a level that we kind of think that we can earn. Right? We want to bring him down to an, an earthly level, something we deserve. But Jesus is far greater and far more merciful king than we could have hoped for or dreamed of. In all of our wildest dreams, we could never have imagined that God would rule his people in this way, from a cross. That God himself would come in the flesh and die for us while we are yet sinners. It's beyond insanity. And if you had expected that, it's ludicrous. Because we don't deserve it. But it's true. And the promise of new life in Christ is true for us today. It was true in our text. The good news of it all is that Jesus has done the work you could not. He has made himself the king you need. He's the king who has conquered the real enemy, death. And he bridges the chasm between God and man. And the issue for us is recognizing that kingship. We cannot make the same fateful mistake of the people in Jerusalem on this day as we read about the triumphal entry. They mistook their king for a liar and they executed him. Jesus' kingship is true no matter your belief or opinion. He simply is king of kings and lord of lords and it's only in submission and repentance and obedience to him that salvation is found and he proves it in his resurrection. 
And that brings us to the final point. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem here in Mark is it's, it's really only a shadow of what is to come. Jesus, in verse 11, does something very peculiar. Let's look at verse 11. Let's just read it together. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's odd. This is by far the most peculiar verse in what we've looked at today. So after all this pomp and circumstance, Jesus finally enters the city. We see that. We're not even into the city when all this is going on. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem. Now he's in Jerusalem. And he goes straight to the temple. He takes a look around. He makes some sort of silent assessment. And he leaves. Mark doesn't tell us here in 1 through 11 what Jesus was looking at specifically, but we can see in the text that we'll be preaching on in the coming weeks that the next day Jesus returns to the temple, but this time it's uh, not going to be as peaceful. He's going to clear it out. He's going to clear the money changers out. He's going to cause quite a ruckus. He's really going to kick this thing off right. And what we see in our text today is meant to be a foreshadowing of the coming day when Jesus comes back to Jerusalem for a final time. And oh, how different that scene will be from what we've read here today. Let me read for you from Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. This is John speaking of his vision. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. The day is coming when Jesus will enter again into Jerusalem and into the whole world. And he will not be mistaken for a fraud or a pauper. And he will not be on a colt, a donkey. He will come on a white horse made ready for war with a sword in one hand and a rod of iron in the other. And his justice will be swift and it will be right. And on that day, Everyone, all people, will recognize and believe and repent. But the season of salvation and repentance will be over. And judgment will be at hand. It will be too late. Just as our seasons come and go, summer, fall, winter, spring, so it's true with Christ. His entrance into Jerusalem before the crucifixion, it inaugurated a season of repentance and salvation. A season of mercy and grace that God would extend himself to the nations. 
We are benefits of that if you are in Christ. Jesus entered into Jerusalem peacefully on a donkey to declare a time of grace and mercy that all might turn from sin and receive life. But when Jesus returns again, that season will end. And the season of judgment will be upon us. And woe to any and all on that day who are not covered in the blood of his righteousness. As we're about to sing, when he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That truth is your hope. Friends, if you're here today and you cannot say with confidence that Christ is your king, as we see him in the scripture today, if you have not submitted to his lordship of your life and lord of your family, lord of your job, lord of every thought and every deed, turn from your pride and cling to Jesus, whose blood is more than sufficient to redeem you. And church, what, what a glorious day that will be, amen, when Christ returns and we see him face to face and he wipes every tear away.